Hello, I'm Pastor Marshall Oaks, and I'm the lead pastor at Red Hills Church in Tallahassee, Florida. And you're about to listen to a message from our Sunday morning gathering. If you enjoy what you hear, please leave us some feedback on iTunes. And if you really like what God is doing at our church, consider supporting the ministry work at redhillschurch.com give. Thanks, and now for some Bible teaching. So as I said earlier, uh, this is not the official, you know, Isaiah kickoff week. Next week will be, Marshall will kick off the official book or our series on Isaiah. And what we've been doing actually since late December, because on our dinner, our Advent series, we actually started the book of Matthew and we just capped it off last week. And so what we're going to do today, something slightly different as what I'd like to do is do a, like an overview of the history of, the, of Israel leading up to the time of Isaiah and just maybe a little bit after that. Uh, so we're going to spend most of our time predominantly, if not all of our time, in the Old Testament. So buckle up. Uh, so I, I like to nerd out on this, this stuff. Uh, we're going to have some slides. We're going to try to do some teaching. And then what I want to do at the end of that is look at what are our takeaways from Israel's history, and then why did Israel need prophets? Why were they a necessary part of God's plan? And so we're going to kind of unpack that as we go through today. Um, so t- turn with me. Like I said, we're not going to kick off Isaiah, but we're going to start there. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 1, verse 1. Now, if this is your first time or in a long time reading the Old Testament, um, it's actually a majority of your Bible. <laughs> People forget that, right? Um, so it's an easy way to find it. Go in the middle, and it's, it's the first of the, the prophets, um, it does not mean he is the first or the, was the first prophet to speak, but in just the order of the books of the Bible, he just happens to come first. So Isaiah, it's right after the Song of Solomon. It's a thick, chap, thick, thick book. And it says this. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Hamaz, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, the king's of Judah. Now, Marshall will likely unpack what those different kings are and give you probably more context to who uh, Isaiah is and where he came from. Um, but what I'd like to do is start with some questions, right? Like, like who is Isaiah? Why, are, why has he got this, this vision and these, these kings, and what is Judah? Because we're probably, we're, again, if this is your first time reading the Old Testament or it's been a long time, you're probably like, where's Israel in this? I thought we were talking about Israel. We're going to unpack some of that stuff. So if you would, uh, if you can show image number one behind me. So what I've provided is a little visual. If, you in, if you're in my community group, we just walked through the entire book of Deuteronomy in our community group. And so I did some of this for them, and it seemed to go over well. And I, what I realized is when we read the Old Testament, sometimes it's difficult for us to understand, like, where in the course of history are we? Right? You pick up the book of Jeremiah. What, what are we reading here? What, why is not only is it important and applicable to us, but what time frame? right? And when, when was Abraham, or, or when did some of these books happen? So what we're going to do today, just spend some time briefly going through that, and we'll, we'll go into Isaiah just, uh, just a little bit. So um, we're going to start with the year 2000 BC, right? Uh, 2000 to 1000-ish BC, because most biblical historians agree or believe that Abraham lived somewhere between the 22nd and 17th century B.C. 
I don't know if you picked up on that, but they agree that he lived sometime in the span of, uh, you know, 500 years. They're not 100% sure on what year Abraham lived, because when you read Genesis, it doesn't say Abraham was born in this day, on this date, right? So we have to do some historical, um, you know, research. And the data given to us isn't always strong. So what I mean by that is we don't have exact dates for when all the books of the Bible, especially the Old Testament, Old Testament books, were written. And some of the books don't even come with an author. So there is some guiding of the Spirit and some we have to rely on the data that we have we've been given. So give me one second because my... Give me one second. There we go. So we believe that Abraham was born somewhere or lived sometime in the second, 22nd to 17th century BC. And again, a lot of the Old Testament books, I mean, Isaiah starts out with the vision of Isaiah. So we have a pretty good idea that Isaiah wrote this book. But during this time frame, from 2000 to 1000 BC, a lot of things were happening in the, in the history of Israel. You have Abraham, right, being called. Then you have all of the, basically the book of Genesis. This is the calling of Abraham. This is his son, Isaac. This is the, this is, um, you know, the, the Jacob and Esau. This is then the, the 12 tribes of Israel being formed, and then they get put into captivity. And then you've got the end of Genesis and the beginning of Exodus, where you have Moses coming out, and you've got the, the, the Israelites enslaved in Egypt for 400-something years, right? Then you have them coming out of Egypt, and you have Mount Sinai, you have the giving of the law, then you have the 40 years wandering in the desert, and all of this is happening in just a thousand-year period. But you can also throw into this period the book of Joshua, the book of Judges, Deuteronomy. You have the, um, the conquest of the promised land. You have books like Ruth happening during this time frame. So a lot of things happening in just a thousand-year period. And then if you throw up chapter, uh, the second image, you have then this thing happens, right? So you have all this, you know, Israel's a, a loose formation of, of tribes. They've got some leaders like Moses and Joshua. They have the time of the judges, but they don't really have a ruler. You know, they don't have a king, someone to rule over them and to tell them what to do and where to go and who to fight and where to go, right? So in 1 Samuel chapter 8, you'll find Israel does something that God never, I mean, he had, you want to say intended, but it wasn't his plan. And what they do is they say, we're kind of, the honeymoon is over. We're, we're tired of this relationship that we have between you and us and God. And so we want a king. It's time for us to have a ruler. And so when we find this, I'm going to read the entire chapter of First Samuel. And here we have Israel demands a king. And it says this, when Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. So even Samuel, the first prophet, or consider him the first prophet, Moses was a prophet as well, his sons didn't follow in his ways, right? And they had perverted justice. And then verse four, then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, behold, you are old. That's kind of harsh, but he's old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint us a king to judge us like all the other nations. But this thing displeased Samuel and he said, give us a king to judge 
us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, it's okay, obey the voice of the Lord, I'm sorry, obey the voice of the people in all that they have said to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me for being king over them. According to all the deeds they have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing also to you. Now then obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So God says, look, they're not rejecting you, Samuel. They're rejecting me. But what I want you to do before they make their final decision, I want you to give them a warning of what it's going to be like if they reject me as their sole king and appoint some man to be over them. So Samuel turns to the people. And so Samuel, in verse 10, told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. And he said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint to himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground to reap his harvest to make him implements of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and all of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because your king, whom you have chosen, by the way, but the Lord will not answer you in this day. And the Lord grants Israel a request in verse 19, but the, Lord ref- but the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, but there shall be a king over us, and, we will also, and that we also may be like all the nations, that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord, and the, and the Lord said to Samuel, obey their voice and make them a king. So Samuel then said to the men of Israel, go every man to his city. And that's the pattern we see out throughout Israel's history. Rejecting God for the things of this world. Things that have structure, consistency, and make sense to our human eyes and ears. And even though they were warned, I mean, if you read that, if, 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 somebody, if I was trying to make a decision about something and somebody told me all those things were going to happen if I make that decision, I'm not going to do that thing. At least I, 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 would, I would hope I wouldn't do that thing. I don't want to be a, a slave. I don't want to have my tenth of my things taken. I don't want my son to be taken into the army, uh, you know, by force. But even they were warned, what they've done is traded in the authority of God for the authority of corrupted men. Men who are self-serving, wicked, deceitful. Men who were sought power, but not servant leadership. People who were thinking that they know the right thing to do. Men who thought speaking and saying the right thing was wisdom. Instead of just being silent. And those who were blinded by fear and swayed by emotions. These are the type of people that, that Israel chose as their king over God. And what was the result of that decision? Well, we know the first king of Israel was Saul, and he was appointed. Again, these dates are fluid, so just go with me here, around 1052 B.C. 
Then if you read your Bible and go back to 1 Samuel, you'll see in 2 Samuel, you'll see that Saul started out okay, but things quickly turned poor. And then God turned to David, and we think of David as King David. He's, think about it, he's the high point. He is the one that all Israel really wants a new King David. That's what they're looking for. But if you keep reading your Bible, you'll find out his time as king was like, yeah, he started out great like his predecessor, but quickly things didn't turn out so well for him. He, he slept with a woman and had a baby with her and then killed her husband or had him killed. And then after that, things just got a little better, and then it started to tail off. And if you look at him as a father figure, he was not a great father. But yet we look at him with such high esteem. And his son Solomon, again, this is probably the high point in Israel's time as a nation. I'm talking about of all time. It was probably the time of, of Solomon, right? He asked for wisdom. He was one of the wisest men that ever lived. And all nations around them would come and want to hear his wisdom. He gathered many chariots and gold. He had many, many wives and concubines, right? But as we know, and if we've read our Bible, we know the time of Solomon ended very poorly. And then what we see after Solomon, can you show image number three, please? After the time of Solomon, his two sons battle back and forth on who's going to be the rightful king. And the end result of that is a split of Israel between two different kingdoms, Israel in the north and Judah in the south. And what follows, if you keep reading, you know, 1st, 2nd Chronicle, 1st, 2nd Kings, you'll see that around 39 different kings are then anointed throughout Israel's history leading up to the Babylonian exile. Now, out of those 39, six did what was right in the sight of the Lord. Six. 33 did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Six, 33. That's, that's not a good ratio, right? Right? We're a young nation, and we want to look through our president's history. Like, if we only said that six of all of our presidents did right in the eyes of the people, that's not a, that's not a good start, right? That's not what we're aiming for. Let's set the bar a little bit higher, right? And these kings who were evil, they led Israel, just as God had predicted, further away from the Lord to the point where kings, one of the kings, one of the ones that Isaiah served under, were sacrificing children, his child, as a sacrifice. The temple of the Lord had been turned over into idolatry and idol worship. They were building monuments and sacrifices on the high places, which is not what you do. And Israel just got further and further and further away from the Lord to at one point, they had completely forgotten about the Torah. It had gotten lost to time, and somebody was searching through the temple and found it and was like, hey, there's this thing, and it's got a lot of good stuff in it. Maybe, and he brings it to the king, and the king's like, well, this is fantastic. Where has this been? This is where Israel is around the time of Isaiah. And what we see is prophets beginning to rise up. This is where we get the books of Joel, Hosea, Amos, and Micah, and Jonah, the ones that predate Isaiah. These are what we consider minor prophets. And these prophets begin to speak the word of the Lord. And they're crying out, turn back to the Lord. 
They called them out on their junk. They called them out on their idolatry. And they said, you are a wicked people. Turn from the Lord or destruction is going to be at your, your door. And if you show the last number four, now again, the book of Isaiah takes place around 740 to 690 BCE. It depends on, again, how you date these things. But, and we're going to learn this as Marshall walks us through the entire book of Isaiah. But during Isaiah's time, we're going to watch as kings and leaders around him make allegiances and pacts with other nations and treaties other than God. Nations like Syria and Egypt, the one that had, you know, enslaved them for 400 years. Assyria and Babylon come. And these, these agreements that they have ultimately end up in both Israel, the northern kingdom, and the southern kingdom, Judah. They are both destroyed, taken off into exile. The temple is destroyed. And Israel, the nation of God, the people of God, is left in utter ruin. Because what men did, the people of God, what they did is they allowed their allegiance to God be split. When they were supposed to follow God and God alone, they really had a simple task in front of them. Not that difficult. Love God and follow the law. And they couldn't do that. And it was their destruction. And yes, while there are certain kings like Hezekiah, one of the six that did what was right, had a bit of a revival, a good revival in the time. They had moments of faithfulness, times of temple worship. The vast majority of Israel's history is full of disobedience and idolatry. In fact, if you read the book of Hosea, it's one of the smaller, minor prophets, Hosea depicts Israel as a prostitute. That's how wicked they had become. And this was 100% predictable, right? God said this was going to happen. And Israel won the king anyways. And why was further before Samuel was even predicted? So um, one of my favorite books of the Old Testament is the book of Deuteronomy. I've got a working book title called The All Roads Lead to Deuteronomy. Um, I have no idea when I'm going to write that book, but I have a working book title. So turn with me to the uh, book of Deuteronomy. We're going to start in chapter 17. Because Moses, the prophet, he predicted all of this, right? Even before Samuel and God. So Deuteronomy 17, 4 through 17 He actually gave instructions to the kings on how they should live. Verse 14. When you come to the land that you, the Lord your God, has given you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me. So again, Moses knew what was going to happen, right? He knew that the people weren't going to be able to do the very thing that he told them to do, which is to honor God alone. And when you want a king over me, like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord, he has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And you shall not acquire many wives for himself lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. What did Solomon do? He gathered chariots and horses, 
He had lots of gold, and he had a lot of wives. Far too many. I got one, and that's enough for me, right? This guy had a thousand. Many. And so, one king does all the three things that Moses warned not to do. And what, what was the cause of this? What, was, what ended up happening? Destruction, the splitting of the two kingdoms, which in, eventually led to Israel's overall destruction. But he didn't stop there, right? Moses didn't stop with just warning the kings. He warned the people as well. So flip forward for me on the same book, Deuteronomy, go to chapter 28. And this is towards the end of the book. Um, Moses is given the law. He has reconfirmed the covenant between God and Israel. But he gives them one final warning. Now remember, Moses is not allowed to enter into the promised land because he struck the rock instead of listening and obeying the voice of the Lord. And so he's standing on the bank of the Jordan River. They've been wandering for 40 years, and Moses is standing on the bank of the Jordan River. He can literally see the promised land, but he's not allowed to enter it. And so he turns and he tells the people and he gives them one final warning before he dies and Joshua takes over. And this section is called the blessing and the curses. Blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. And he starts out, now this chapter, we're not going to read the whole thing, is 68 verses long. The first, uh, let's see here, 14 are for the blessing. That's a lot of verses just to cover the disobedience part. We'll get there into a second. But for the, the, for the blessing, this is what Moses says. He says, And if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all of his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you above all the nations of the earth. And all the blessings just shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. Notice how many times he says obey kind of key. Blessed shall you be in the city, and blessed shall you be in the field. Blessed shall be the fruit of your womb, and the fruit of your ground, and the fruit of your cattle, the increase of your herds, and the young of your flock. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed shall you be when you come in, and blessed shall you be when you go out. And he continues on for the next so many verses about how all the different blessings, if, if Israel is able to obey and listen to the voice of the Lord. But now, skip forward to verse 15. We're going to read through 24. And we're going to read about the disobedience. What happens if and when they disobey? But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, your God, or be careful to do all the commandments and the statutes that I command you today, then all of these curses, the next, you know, 54 verses, will overtake you. Cursed shall you be in a city, and cursed shall you be in the field. Cursed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be your fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground. Increase the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. Cursed shall be when you come in, and cursed shall you be when you go out. The Lord, the Lord, not others, the Lord will send you on, will send on you curses, confusion, and frustration, and all that you undertake to do until you are destroyed and perish quickly on the account of the evil deeds you have done, because you have forsaken me. The Lord will make the pestilence. Look that up. It's not fun. 
stick to you until he has consumed you off the land that you are entering to take possession of it. The Lord will strike you with wasting disease, when with fever, inflammation, and fiery heat, and with drought and with blight with your mildew. You sh- they shall pursue you until you are perish, and the heavens over your head shall be bronze, and the earth under you shall be iron. The Lord will make the rain of your land powder. From the heaven, dust shall come down on you until you are destroyed. That's their warning. That's what God, Moses spoke over the people. And then for the next, you know, like I said, verses, it goes on for 40 more. The blessings was only 14, but he goes on for 50, 50 verses. You'll be defeated among your enemies. The Lord will strike boils upon you. You're going to be robbed and oppressed. Your betrothed wives will be ravished by other men. You'll be driven mad. You'll be taken into captivity. And the Lord will send you and the king that you have set over you to other nations what we call being exiled. And this is the world in which Isaiah and the prophets find themselves. Israel has turned away from God, and they are reaping the consequences of those actions. They had one job. It didn't seem that difficult. In the grand scheme of things, Loving God and obeying his commandments doesn't really seem all that difficult. Now, is the law easy? No. There's a lot of—there's 600 laws. It wasn't the easiest thing to follow. But the heart behind the law was that you loved God and you loved other people. Jesus summed that up for us in Matthew. But what they were doing, what these prophets were doing, is they were warning the people once again— and, they, and the people of God failed. And here comes Assyria and Babylon to take them into captivity. So, what does this mean for us? You know, we're Christians living in 21st century. What are we supposed to do here? What are we supposed to do with this? Well, I'm going to look at two things. One, our takeaways, I'm going to look at not only at Israel's inability to serve God and God alone, but also the prophets who were willing to speak up when everybody else was just playing follow the leader. So let's start with Israel. Now, a helpful way to read the Old Testament when you're reading it and trying to put it in context for yourself and how do you apply it to your life is to simply just translate Israel for the church. Very helpful way to kind of see how the church today, you know, would be applied to the Old Testament. So my first takeaway here is that clearly, starting in Deuteronomy, Israel was destined to fail. I didn't say predestined, I just said destined, okay? It was going to happen. It was an inevitability. Because we got the the warnings from Moses in Deuteronomy. You've got Samuel and God warning them again. This was all very predictable. It was very inevitable. But remember, too, that Israel's success or failure, their blessing or their curses, hinged on their ability to obey, to follow the law. Remember what Moses said in Deuteronomy 28.1, and if you faithfully obey, these blessings will come upon you. And Paul goes deep into this in the book of Romans, but the law set them up for failure. I said it was easy, but I didn't say it was simple. Because in Romans chapter 8, verse 3, Paul says this about the law. He says, it was powerless 
because it was weakened by the flesh. Now that word powerless isn't hard to understand. It means to be without power. So how was the law, something provided to us by God, powerless? Well, for starters, it was just words on a page or a tablet. Yes, I understand that any words from God on a page, any word of the Lord, is, is far greater and far more powerful than any words of man on a page. I mean, we live in a country where probably the greatest written document ever by man, the Constitution of the United States, is probably one of the great, again, the greatest documents ever written. It, it pales in comparison to the Word of God. I get that, right? But it was limited, the power was limited by their ability to obey, by man's disobedience. And if there is one human trait that exists, starting with Adam and Eve, that flows through every single human that has ever lived into its a born trait for every child that is born every second, every second, every second, is that we are disobedient. We don't like to obey. It's not, even in the, you know, the most obedient child you will ever have desires to disobey. It's kind of our thing as humans. So, if Israel was destined to fall, humans were destined to disobey, fail, and we just, we can just, uh, replace the church for Israel, then that means the church is destined to fail as well. And I know some of you have heard me preach that time. You've gone, here goes Lyle again, banging on the church, being negative about what we're doing here today. That's not what I'm doing, right? I'm not beating a dead horse. Because what I see as a negative, I think is a positive. Uh, not what I see as a negative, what you may see as a negative, I see as a positive. Because I love the church. The greatest gift given to mankind outside of Jesus himself is his church. Because within it, what we possess contains the message of salvation for the world. It's the message of the gospel. But just like with Israel, if you look at our history, it's been 2,000 years, if you look at our history, we have some high moments. No, I'm not going to lie. The Protestant Reformation, a pretty good high moment in, in the church history, right? But we got some low moments as well. There's some rough history within the church, and we have to be honest about that history. We can't ignore it and act like it never happened. And I can sit here and I can list all of those low moments for the church, and I'm, I'm not going to do that. Because we need to ask ourselves, if God sent a prophet, we'll call him to Israel, Hosea, to declare that Israel was being a prostitute, I wonder if God were to send a prophet like Hosea today, how would he describe the church of Christ, his bride? What, what, what description, what adjective would he use to describe us? I'm not going to sit here and say that we are six good kings and 33 bad ones on the level of Israel. I'm also going to say we're maybe not that far off. Because the church, the body of Christ, not the four-wall church, the body of Christ is at a crossroads. I mean, look around you. Last four or five years, a decade, society is pushing back. Perhaps the church, right, is in need of some threshing. 
Maybe it's time for us to do a little separating of the wheat and chaff, because I'm not so sure that this society pushing back is a bad thing. Because remember what Jesus told us, what would happen to us if we stood for him? Would we be just paraded through the streets? No, we would be rejected for his name. So if the church begins to face some persecution for standing on the word of God and his truth, then that's a positive. That means we're actually doing the thing that Jesus told us to do. We're out there spreading the gospel message. Because in some ways, we're supposed to fail. It's not supposed to be easy. It's not always supposed to be pretty. Go ask Paul how pretty and easy it was for him to spread the gospel throughout the known world. He got beaten several times, stoned, rejected. But we need to make sure that the persecution that we're facing is because we're standing on truth and not because we're standing on something else that looks like truth, that feels like truth. That's actually just an ideology that we've believed and we live out that's actually nothing to do with the Word of God. Because here's the thing. The power of salvation is in Christ alone. And if we, as people, allow other folks to think that salvation is in the church, the institution, the four-walled building, that's the source of their salvation, then we have failed. You've probably heard people say this, man, if I could just get back in church. No, 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 no. You don't need church. You need Jesus to transform you. The church is here for your accountability, so we can gather together like we have today to worship Jesus, to study his word. That's what the church is for, for fellowship. It's not your salvation. Being in church is not going to make you a Christian. If, if that's what we're focusing on, man, we have replaced the gospel message of Jesus Christ with religion, with works. That's what that is. So what we need is a new body, right? We need a transformed life. God said he's going to, what? Give us a new heart, not just make the old one better. That's what we need. So we had to decide. This is my final point on Israel. We have to decide. Are we going to be those who listen and obey the voice of the Lord, or are we going to be those who follow the path of disobedience? It's up to each one of us. Now the, now the prophets. Now this one's a little more difficult, because if we're not careful, when we read the books of the prophets, we can convince ourselves that the prophets weren't actually speaking to us. That the warnings that Moses gave and God gave Israel and the prophets were speaking was actually for just that generation or some other generation. Because, you know, of course, we're the generation that has it all together, or generations, right? We're the ones that figured out that perfect balance between obedience and faithfulness. Sure, Every generation before us has failed miserably, but we're the ones that got it right. No, most likely we're, no, we're, we're just as bad as the rest, right? 
We're struggling with the same things past generations struggled with. We're, we're struggling with the same thing Israel struggled with. And the prophets were most certainly speaking to all of Israel. Because as I showed on that image, the time of the prophets spanned 500 years. They didn't all come to one generation. They spread out over both northern and southern kingdoms. We had major prophets like Jeremiah and Ezekiel speaking to one thing, and then you've got Zach. You know, they, they, they covered their entire basis. So this got me thinking, what is the New Testament version of the Old Testament prophet? Because it is one of the fivefold ministries listed in the Bible, but, but what is the comparison? And the closest thing we probably have would be the apostles and their books that they wrote to us, to the church. So who did Paul write to? Peter, James, John, Jude, like what, who did, who did they write to? It wasn't the non-believers. Because the, because if the, if the prophets spoke to Israel and the corrupt kings and people of their time, the apostles wrote letters to the church, right? So if, again, if we're replacing church with Israel, and Israel with the church. What the apostles were doing was the exact same thing that the prophets were doing, just in a different time. Because what the prophets were proclaiming the word of the Lord to the lost, not to the lost, I'm sorry, not to the lost, but the people of God in hopes to turn them from their wicked ways. They were speaking to corrupt kings and people who would turn from the one true God. They saw Babylon and Assyria at the gates and said, look, destruction is coming, thus says the Lord. Which is kind of similar to the message Paul had in 1 and 2 Corinthians. Paul was admonishing the church at Corinth. He had letters back and forth and he was correcting their misguided theology. They had allowed, the church at Corinth had allowed evil to creep in and destruction was looming. He said, purge the evil from among you. Cast the brother out. This was Paul's message. But he also had a message to Peter. And they had a disagreement over the Gentiles. And then in the book of Galatians, he has a big problem with false gospels being preached. So Paul, if you read his letters, he wasn't really worried about the outside world influencing the church. He was worried about evil from within. I mean, Paul was the greatest church planner of our life. I mean, of his, he was the goat, okay? And his letters and instructions were to the church. You didn't point me in one of his books where he starts calling out the atheist, right? Or to some other group that was influencing the church. No, he was mostly concerned with how the church was handling that outside influence. So again, if the, if the prophets spoke to, to the people of God and the apostles wrote letters to the church, why is this important to us? It's important because maybe it's time for us as a church, four walls and the global church, to stop focusing on the world and worry about our own house. It's important because I get this sense that the last decade, four years, last year, whatever it may be, I get this sense that Christians are looking for a fight. We want to pick up our swords and start slashing folks. When we, when, when we be Peter in the, in the garden, when, when Jesus is taken, he wants to cut off an ear, and Jesus is like, no, 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 no. It's not what I'm here for. I mean, heal the, heal the man who's taking me into you know, captivity. 
Look, there's nothing wrong with wanting a fight. I get it. We just need to make sure that we're fighting the right people. The battle is in the correct place. So if I may, there's, there's a sense, I think, growing within the church that we're getting concerned that we're, we see less churches in America, that people are walking away from the faith. And if I, if I may, let me speak to that just for a moment. Number one, I said earlier, we need to ask if that wasn't God's plan all along. Maybe it's time for fewer people to call themselves a Christian. Did you hear that? I didn't say for fewer people to be Christian, for fewer people to call themselves a Christian. Because I can call myself, a, I don't care what society says, I can call myself a duck, that doesn't make me a duck. So we need to be careful with our terminology. Maybe it's okay that we see some separating the wheat from the chaff. There's just some threshing going on within the body of Christ. Maybe a, that's a good thing. And also, there are times throughout the course of human history when it's necessary for us to stand and fight. But there are also times when we should be silent. And there are also times when we write a strongly worded letter and we nail it to the church door and we watch revolution happen. And our responsibility is to figure out what time we are living in. Because my thought is this, if the world is screaming, we need to be silent and prayfully be silent. If the world is scared, the church should be strong. If the world is angry, we should be peacemakers. Because what Jesus tells us to do in Matthew chapter 5 is that we should allow the light that he's given us to be seen. So that what? Matt, Matt prayed for it at the end. That he may be glorified, not us. And we have to ask if our light that we're shining to the world isn't glorifying Jesus Christ, maybe it's time we click that thing off. Stop shining it for a little while until we can figure things out. Because when it comes to the body of Christ interacting within the world, until our house is in order, they're not going to want anything to do with us. I would rather see the people of God, body of Christ, be more worried about what's being preached on a Sunday morning and less about what an atheist has to say on the internet. Because there is some absolute garbage being preached on Sundays in so many churches. Let's worry about that. I'd rather see the people of God be more concerned with the prosperity preacher on TV telling somebody if they give their paycheck to him, they're going to be Jeremiah 29, 11, whatever that is. Let's worry about that. Because we can handle that first, then maybe we can worry about how to use pronouns, critical race theory, or some other worldview that is contrary to the gospel. Let's worry about our own house first. I want to see the day when parents, and I'm speaking as one who has three kids in public school, who are more concerned or less concerned about what's being taught in science and more concerned about what's being taught in our homes. Because here's the thing, our kids are learning from us first. They're seeing how we talk about non-believers. They're seeing how we treat them, who we have in our house, who we don't have in our home. 
They're learning from us first, and then they're going to school and being taught as well. Let's worry about that first. I want to see a day when the people of God divorce ourselves 100% from any political party. I say that not because I don't think politics are important. I like in politics. I like, that's fine. I say that because at some point, just like Israel, our allegiances are going to be called into question. And if you are having to decide whether you're going to stand for the word of God or stand for some political party's ideology, and there's a non-believer in the middle, who are you going to support? Because I can tell you right now, if you've, you've let a political party stand between you and preaching the gospel, you are in error. I am in error. We are wrong. We have to break down the wall, forget what somebody says in D.C., and start living out the gospel in a real way. Because if we don't, we are most certainly going to lose this country. And I long for the day when the people of God are of one mind and heart and are no longer divided among denominational lines, who wears a mask or who doesn't, by the color of our skin or by the type of music that we listen to. That's what we need. Because if we can get that right, if we can get our own house in order, we will be that city on the hill that Jesus told us to be. Our light will shine bright, and the world around us will say, I want that. Because right now they're saying, I don't want that. And that's what we should be concerned with. I'm going to close here. What the world needs now, like I said, I don't have a, it's not a day, this Marshall will come up with a different image for the series, but I, I entitled this message, What the World Needs Now. What the world needs now are Christians who are living out the gospel in real and authentic ways. It needs followers of Christ who don't want to see just changed behaviors, but transform lives through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Look, the gospel, I shared a video, go to my Facebook page if you care, my Instagram, I shared a video of a guy talking about this. The gospel is not you just learning how to cuss less or drink less or becoming a good person. I can, atheists are good people. The gospel is about a God who loved you so much that he sent his only son so that you would have a transformed life, that you would be taken from darkness into the light, that he will take out that old, wicked heart that once existed and he will replace it with something brand new. He doesn't want a changed you, he wants a new you. That's the message of 2 Corinthians chapter 5. That's the new creation that we're supposed to be. Not just you, a different version of you that's a better you that looks better around your friends, you, the, 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 the version of you that you share on Facebook, the version of you that looks on Instagram, the one that you don't let, you know, you're only the, that's the one that people see. No, he wants a brand new version of Lyle. And that's our sanctification process. We're going, we're being moved from that darkness to light, and I get it. Because right now, what the world needs are disciples of Christ. Because evangelism in the 21st century is going to look different than what we saw 100 years ago. If, if you put evangelism on a pendulum, it has swung. It's, look, the days of hellfire and brimstone, those days are over for right now. They ain't listening anymore, guys. The lost aren't listening to none of that. I saw a video the other day 
of a guy, and I like TikTok, whatever, you don't like TikTok, that's fine. I was scrolling through and I saw this video, and a guy says, if you needed the threat of eternal damnation or eternal life to be a good person, you weren't a good person to, be, be, to begin with. And I sat back, and that was an atheist saying that. I was like, man, one, that's not the gospel, but two, that's, that's right. If we need the threat of eternal damnation to be a good person, then we got much bigger issues. Now, I get a follower of Christ. Part of being that is that we get eternal salvation. Like, I get that part of the message. But if that's what, you, that's what you're hinging on, then we need to have a conversation because there's a lot more things to being saved and being a believer of Jesus Christ than just having, you know, getting through the pearly gates. And they, look, evangelism is going to be harder today than perhaps ever before. I don't mean dangerous. Maybe one day it may be. Just harder. Because when everyone around you already knows the name of Jesus, no one really is an unbeliever. Because they believe, maybe, but they've made the conscious decision to reject Christ. So we've got to come from a, a different angle. Non-believers, and I put that in quotes, these days, they're really smart. There's some atheists and non-believers that I spoke to that know more about the Bible than the average Christian. And the reason why they know the Bible so well is because they, they probably grew up in the church. So we have to rethink how we evangelize these days. Our approach has to change. Because if we ask many non-Christians why they don't believe in Jesus, you'll get a, a wide array of answers. But in my experience, the ones that I've talked to, a large majority of them can be categorized as this. I like your Jesus, but I don't like your Christian. They've watched the church walk out our faith, and they decided to reject Jesus. This can be true for many different reasons. Some of them is not our fault. Maybe they've heard the word, but it's fallen on soil that's not ready, and they've rejected it. They don't want to change. They like who they are, maybe. But they don't want to accept that a book written thousands of years ago is still relevant today. They heard the gospel, they processed it, and said, no, I don't want that. Maybe they've heard the word, but the message they heard wasn't the true gospel. It was a watered-down version, or, even worse, it was full of religion. It was a set of rules to follow. And they watched as Christians talked more about hating the other side than loving anyone. So they rejected it. Not Jesus. They rejected, rejected that version of Jesus. Maybe they heard the word, accepted it, but over years it didn't have a lot of depth to it. Maybe it was even based on emotion. And as Paul warns us in Colossians, they got chipped up in philosophy. And he says this in Colossians chapter 2, See to it that no one takes you by captive by philosophy or empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the element spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Maybe their depth was just shallow, and they were just overcome by deceit, philosophy. Maybe for many, and this is includes a lot of people who call themselves Christian, they haven't necessarily rejected Christ, 
but more like they just rejected him as king over their life. They worship a flag, not Jesus. They worship the institution of church or America, and not Jesus. Because here's the thing, they don't need Jesus. They're taken care of. I mean, we, we live in the greatest country in the world. We have literally, anybody born in America was born, we, we hit the, the lotto, guys. And we don't need Jesus because we're taking care of all of our needs. And those are just a few examples, right? And each one may need a different approach from an evangelistic standpoint. And, and that's our responsibility as followers of Christ who have the word of God, who have depth our roots are deep and they're, and they're, they're solid in the word of Christ. That's, that's our responsibility is to meet them where they are, not where we want them to be. So my encouragement today is let's decide to make real change today. Because in-house, we're talking about Red Hills, this city, our homes, our neighbors, our friends, our co-workers, this is our wheelhouse. This is what we're talking about here. We can't fix the global church. And that's not our responsibility. That's the great thing about it. Our job is not to fix the world. Our job is not to bring salvation to the world. That's the Holy Spirit's job. That's Jesus's job. Remove that from the pressure of your mind. Our responsibility is to love others, take care of them, talk to our neighbors, have conversations, invite them to lunch, invite them to church if you have to. That's our responsibility, and let the Holy Spirit do the work. And when the opportunity arises to have a conversation, be open-minded to what they have to say. They may have gone through 20 years of you-know-what. We have to be willing to accept that. They may look different from you and have different perspectives from, than you. They may have grown up in a different, completely different family unit than you. And your responsibility and my responsibility isn't to say, you've got to get on my level first before I can talk to you. I don't know what you've been through, but I'm going to humble myself. I'm going to sit and just talk and listen and be silent for, a, for just a moment. We have enough people talking. Maybe it's time for us just to be silent. Because here's my hope. Because if through the Spirit, right, the leading of the Spirit, by the preaching of the Word, or just some conversation over lunch, one father or one mother is radically saved, and they're sold out for Christ in a real way. Man, that's revolution. Because that affects their spouse, their husband or wife, and then their kids, and their kids' kids, and their kids' kids. I stand here today because my dad made a decision 30 years ago. And that's how we see revolution. That's revival. It's one person at a time. It's one relationship. It's one conversation. How do we deal with when we see bad doctrine being preached online? Well, that's going to lead into the Spirit. Probably not best to start an argument online. It's probably not going to be the best route there. Have a conversation. Have a relationship. And let the Spirit do the rest. Amen? So let's decide today to start a revolution in our own homes, in our own families, in our own church, in our own cities. If we do that, then we can impact the world. But we can't do it if we don't start with each other. We can't do it if we, just don't, we don't start with ourselves right? Amen? It's 4th of July, right? And go home and shoot off some fireworks or something, right? Before we do that, that's my closing. 
or a new communion. Hello again, it's Pastor Marshall, and I just wanted to say thank you for listening to this message. If you want to hear other messages or maybe find out more about our church, you can visit redhillschurch.com. From there, you'll find links to our social media pages, message archive, and ways you can support the ministry work. Thanks again for spending time with us, and God bless.